Good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together. Thank you, Sydney, for that wonderful story that uh, just describes what sanctification can look like. Sometimes it's we need more than just definitions, uh, but stories help us to imagine uh, what sanctification and holiness can look like for the church. Uh, this morning, for parents, you might have listened to the passage being read by NJ, and you might be going, ooh, is this going to be PG-13? Is this going to be R? Well, I think uh, as I prepare this sermon, uh, it's going to be more like PG-G, maybe not G. My wife uh, texted me saying, that was more than I thought it would be but uh, in the first part. But if you do feel uncomfortable, um, we do have cry rooms available for you if you want to take your kids out for a little bit. But uh, really today's passage, as Cindy has shared through the story, is really about sanctification. And we'll touch on in the first part, in point one of three, uh, a little bit of kind of the sexual ethics. But last year, right before we shut down uh, and went virtual because of COVID, I did preach on sexuality um, in Genesis. And so that was March 8th. And so it was about a 45-minute sermon. So if you want to listen on where we stand as a church and kind of be able to get more of the nuance of sexual ethics and sex, human sexuality, please go there on our podcast from last, last year on March 8th and listen to that. Uh, it is like 45 minutes long, so I give you permission to listen to it at one and a half times speed or double speed if necessary. Um, I don't think I'm too fast of a speaker. So uh, with that said, let me pray for us as we go into God's word this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us that is uh, so applicable, whether it was written thousands of years ago or even as we think about our own cultural moment, uh, your word lasts forever, though the grass withers and the flower fades. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, uh, encourage us so that, Lord, we might be able to live more onto thee. So Lord, won't you do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the midst of Eastertide, and that's the seven Sundays as we celebrate Easter and remember Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and during this Eastertide series, we've been looking at the resurrection church, namely through this Thessalon Thessalonian church that Paul was writing to. And we've been looking at, in light of Jesus' resurrection, what does this actually look like to be the church of Christ in our cultural moment and in our history right now? And over these past three weeks, we've looked at different aspects of what the church should look like in light of the resurrection. We've looked at how we are called to be a new community. Second, we, uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at how we're called to be a gospel community. And last week, Pastor John led us through what it means to be an enduring community in the midst of affliction and in the midst of persecution and suffering. Now, what, we, what was remarkable as we've looked at, the, at this church over these last three weeks is that this little ragtag group of a minority culture in this huge Greco-Roman world actually became culture shakers and culture makers and brought the light of the gospel to bear in this entire region of Macedonia and Achaia, which is current-day Greece. This little small group, which was only a year old of a church plant, actually made a difference in their culture and in their society. 
Now today, as we look at this passage, we're going to be looking at how we are called to be a holy community. One that is being sanctified more and more every single day. But here in, these, in this chapter 4, Paul makes this shift. From chapters 1 through 3, he's been really focusing on thanksgiving. Like he's just sharing and just sharing out of just sheer joy and gratitude how much the Thessalonians have been such a joy to him. But here in chapter 4, he shifts and says, I need to also now begin to address some of these things that are going on in your church. These commands and exhortations that Paul wants to give the church. I thought about it in this way. Back when I was graduating from high school, I remember my parents taking me to college for the first time unpacking, taking me out to eat, and we ended up coming back to my dorm room before they decided to go back up to Chicago. And I remember sitting there, and they praying for me, me crying, I'm the oldest son, and just like thinking about leaving was really hard on me. But then after they prayed, my mom gave me a, uh, a card or a letter. And my mom is really into like letters and cards, and so I have like hundreds and hundreds of cards from my mom that I saved because she said I can never, never throw any of her cards out or letters out. But I remember that letter, and I still have it, and it, the first half of that letter is all about thanks, how much she appreciated me and the ways that I've grown as a son, but also just as an adult. But the second part of that letter pivots, and she talks about all the ways that she wants to, for me to grow in Christ and to be a faithful follower of Jesus, of all the things that I should do and shouldn't do. You know, things like go to church every Sunday, pray, read your Bible, make good friends. But she also talked about things that I shouldn't do, like drink, don't do drugs, don't join those fraternities, they're bad for you, don't go to all those parties, right? Because out of her sheer love for me, she wanted me to flourish in my four years at college. Paul does the same thing here. As a spiritual father, he's writing to them of the same love and gives them these moral instructions on what it looks like to be a church community that flourishes. And so he gives them these, com he gives them these commands and exhortations in chapter 4 and 5 as we finish out this series in the next few weeks. But today, as we look at how they change their society and culture, we want to be able to look at these three things. The what, which is the concerns, Second, why does he address these concerns? And lastly, how the application of these concerns that he brings up. So first, let's look at the what. What are these concerns that Paul addresses as he thinks about sanctification? Well, in this portion of the letter, Paul wants to address two concerns, namely sexual ethics and work. And these are the particular issues that were going on in the church. Remember, Timothy had actually visited the church, and so when he comes back to tell Paul of everything that was going on, these were some of the particular particularities that Paul wants to address of the concerns that this church had. And so when he talks about sexual ethics in this portion of the letter, as he does actually with many of the churches that he talks to, you have to remember that this church was living in a Greco-Roman world where things like prostitution, mistresses, concubines, house slaves were very common in the church or in the culture. One scholar talked about it this way. 
He said, far from prohibiting sexual immorality, the cults of Dionysus, Aphrodite, and others promoted sexual license. The Gentile members of the Thessalonian church would have found it difficult to understand how their conversion to the living God necessitated abandoning those pleasures that their previous religious alliances had approved or ignored. Moreover, the social norms of the day permitted those, approved, those practices that the Christian ethic prohibited. For example, it was socially acceptable for young men to have sexual relationships before marriage. Cicero, who had spent time actually in Thessalonica, argued in favor of this freedom for the youth. He commented, Let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. In Greek society, a man who owned female slaves could use his human property to satisfy his desires while prostitutes were at the service of any man. This was the culture that the Thessalonian church lived in. Not very different from today. And as he, Paul addresses this concern, what does he say? He says, abstain from sexual immorality. This word in the Greek, porneia, which actually just meant the misuse of sex as God had intended it to be used for, which was namely in the context of marriage between husband and wife. So anything outside of that, Sexual abuse, pornography, and so forth, whether it's in the marriage or outside of marriage, would be deemed as porneia, immoral. Now, I can't go into all the nuances of that today, but I do encourage you to go back to the podcast that I preached on last year. But you can now understand and imagine the temptations that these sexual sins created for this young church plant. What was less than a year old. And Paul is calling them to abstain so that they might actually flourish. Giving dignity to women where there was none. Giving dignity to children where there was none. He's saying this is the way God intended it to be used. But second, the other concern that Paul wanted to address was work. Now why work? Well, two reasons why he wants to talk about work. First is that there were people that were actually not working. And it wasn't because they were unable to work. Not because they were unemployed looking for jobs, but these people were able to work but chose not to. Do you know why? Paul will address this in 2 Thessalonians and also later on in chapter 5. But it's because they, this young church who still was trying to figure out all of the theology and doctrine of Christianity, they thought Jesus was coming back very, very soon. And so they thought, well, if Jesus is coming back, like, forget work. I don't want to work. What's the point? Let's just live it up and just wait for Jesus to come back. And so Paul is saying, no, there is a reason why we are called to work. And Paul talks about that, right? He says, to aspire, in verse 11, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. But there's another reason why he addresses this, and it's because of this word that he uses, work with your hands. It was that there was this status or hierarchy of what kind of job you had. If those that were working with your hands, which meant physical manual labor, that meant that your job was actually menial. It was actually very much the sense of degradation, like it wasn't worth it. That you had your status and dignity and worth in life was actually less than those who actually used their minds. Philosophers, those in the arts. 
And so there was this very push against, well, if you're just doing manual physical labor, like just leave it because you don't want to be judged against that. And in these ways, Paul wanted to address work as well because out of, whether it was out of just uh, a misapplication of theology or because of the cultural norms, these young believers were not working. They were either lazy or, or uninformed. And so Paul wants to address these issues and say, these are concerns that I have for you. Now, why does Paul bring these concerns to the church? Well, as we've been hinting at, is that it's because it was for their sanctification and ours as well. Look at verse 1 through 3. Paul, in these first part addresses that everything here is for their sanctification. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here's the kicker. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The reason he brings up sexuality and work is that they might be sanctified. And this word sanctification comes from this adjective, holy. And I know holy can sometimes be misused in the church, but literally holy just means set apart, distinct, morally pure. Like there was something different as God sanctifies these young believers that was different from the outside world and culture. They were set apart. And here what Paul is getting at is that they are to live this life to become more and more holy, set apart throughout their Christian life. I love our Westminster Shorter Catechism. I don't quote it often. But here think about how they define sanctification. It is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed into the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It is a work of God's free grace where we are being renewed more and more to becoming more like Jesus every single day of our lives. When Paul writes this, these first three verses, I love how he equates sanctification with walking. Did you see that? Right at the end of verse 1, he says that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, that there is this essence in sanctification which is actually requiring us to walk with Jesus every single day of our lives. It's abiding in him day by day. What does it look like for us to walk day by day with him? Parents, you guys might get this, or all of us should get this, because we've had parents at some point in our lives. But you know the old adage that our children become more like their parents every single day. And our kids are getting older. They're 14, 11, and 7. And every single day, I'm just reminded how they resemble me or my wife more and more. Just yesterday, uh, we, my wife and I were taking a little walk in our neighborhood with our youngest daughter because she was the only one that wanted to go out with us and walk. But as we were walking, it's funny, we smelled like the stench of skunk, right? There was some, a skunk had died or it sprayed somebody or something. And my daughter, as we walk, goes, mmm, smells so good. And immediately, guess what my wife says? She says, 
oh my gosh, you are your dad's daughter. Because I love the smell of skunk. It smells like food, some kind of Korean food that I love. I know, I know. People all ask me afterwards. But she is becoming more and more like me. She is becoming a song. And for parents or for children, they are becoming for better and for worse, more like their parents. But here as we walk and are being sanctified by Christ, we are becoming for the better. There is no worse. Our God is holy. And as we think about that, as we abide in that, he makes us more holy. We are being conformed into his character, his image, his holiness. We are being set apart from the world and becoming more glorious and beautiful because of who we are in Christ. Jesus is transforming us day by day. And I love how he uses this word more and more. Did you see that? Twice Paul says more and more. You're doing it. Church. You are abiding. You are walking. You are dying to sin. But do it more and more. And you know what that signals? We're never done. Until the day we die, or until when Christ comes back, we will more and more become more beautiful, more like Him, more glorious, more like Him in His character, in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In these ways, we are becoming more and more. Every single day, until we see Him face to face, we are being sanctified. What's fascinating, as we look at this passage and Paul's these two concerns of sexuality and work, think about these two areas. Sexuality, it's one that's private, Right? It's behind closed doors. But work, that's more public. It's out in the world. And what Paul, I think, is trying to get at, and for us here, whether these two things are the things that you need to continue to be sanctified in, is that it's in all spheres of life, he wants us to become more like him. Whether it's public, whether it's private. He wants to take over every single area of our lives. Much like the story. Jesus wants to take every part of your life, everything under the bed and out in life, in your workplace, as a student, in the universities. God desires to make you more like him in every sphere of life. But I think that's the problem for the Christians I'm talking to now. The problem for the church is that we've actually focused so much of our attention on other people. Look at what's happening out in our culture. Look at what's happening in my public school. Look what's happening in my workplace. And we're so consumed with what is going out in the world that we don't even pay attention to our own hearts and our own souls and how God is making us more like him. We're not paying attention to the sins that we are called to die to. And instead, we're focusing on the other. It's just another way of saying, look at the plank in your own eye before we look at the plank, uh, speck in the other. In other words, the problem with the church is that we are more concerned with the sin of those outside the church more than we are with our own sanctification. And I think that's why we, got, we are in so much trouble these days. Two weeks ago, I talked about how we're seeing more and more pastors and leaders in the church falling into moral failure. Why? Because we're so concerned about everything outside rather than what's going on inside our own hearts. 
That's why look at what Paul says in verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For those who do not know God, what will we expect? But for us who profess faith, what does it look like to be paying attention to our own hearts and being able to become more and more like Christ in our sanctification? So how do we do this then? How did the Thessalonian church do this? How did they make such an impact in their society and in their pagan culture? How did they do that? It was that they were paying attention to their sanctification. They took the words of God and it meant something for them. It was through their sanctification that they were able to actually revolutionize their society and culture. A small little ragtag group of people in minority culture These little Christians impacted the world because of their life and their sanctified life, becoming more and more like Jesus. And here I just want to give us three things that I want us to just think about and meditate and maybe talk about if you are involved in a community group. To be able to ask ourselves, are these things true of me? How do we actually do this? Well, here, let's look at some of these implications. First, As Paul talks about sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus, he says we are called to love God and love neighbor. It's love of God and love of neighbor. All throughout just these 12 verses, look at what Paul talks about. Verse 1, we are called to please God. Verse 6, no one transgress and wrong his brother and sister. Verse 9, we're called to brotherly love. Verse 9 as well, taught by God to love one another, right? Love one another for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. It was through them becoming more and more like Jesus, offering a different way of life that was actually flourishing, more beautiful, good. Which was actually loving God and loving neighbor that they transformed their society. But so much of our day, which has infiltrated the church as well, is that it's not about love of God or love of neighbor. It's about love of self. It's all about what can I get? Get what's yours. And there's this anthropology of the culture that says that we don't belong to anyone but yourself. And I know I've been preaching on this week by week, but this is so important as we think about the church. There's this anthropology that says, we don't belong to anyone but myself. And it comes from this idea that, well, the only person I can trust is myself, and so I just belong to myself. I can't trust anyone but myself. But just think about that. Think about that ideology that I can only trust myself. If you just think about it for one minute, you begin to realize how foolish that idea is. Because every single day, I make foolish decisions. I think horrible thoughts, the way I interact with my wife and my children, the decisions I make for my family, the way I, the decisions I make on the road when I drive. Can we actually trust ourselves so much so that we don't belong to anyone but myself? And when we see, when that becomes a lens that we see life through, 
There is so much brokenness and disillusionment. There's pain, suffering, despair when it comes to things like work and sexuality. When all you think is that you don't belong to anyone but me, myself, and I. But a biblical anthropology says what? That we actually belong to one another. That there are obligations and commitments that I actually have with you and you with me. And there's actually limitations as well to how we are called to love one another and love God. And when we live in that kind of anthropology and believe and live that out, there actually can be flourishing. An ethic that gives dignity to women when we think about sexual ethics. When we think about the way we work, that no longer is it just about maximum profit. Maximum efficiency, maximum productivity, but rather I'm actually thinking about what does it look like for the common good of others in this world. Here, Paul grounds our sanctification in love of God and love of neighbor. Jake Meter, who wrote this book, uh, man, I, can't, I couldn't think of it yesterday either or uh, this morning. Something about the common good. You know it. What was it called? I can't think of it either. But he says this. Our physical property and physical world itself are not objects to be owned and consumed in whatever way the owner of the property deems fit. They are to be stewarded for the good of all people. And when we fail to do this, we are, according to Christianity, engaging in theft, which is, of course, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. It beautifully summarizes what love of God and love of neighbor looks like versus love of self. But secondly, which is tied to this idea, is responsibility of family. I, I just, it hit me so hard this week as I was preaching on this, of how truly diverse this church was. I mean, Paul talks about those that were doing manual labor, blue-collar people, the poor, and those that were rich, who had high status in society. You had Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, who were living, trying to live by the ethics of, 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 of the God that they worshipped. Versus the Gentiles who had all this pressure to live as they were grown and taught to live in their sexuality. Yet all these different kinds of people, young and old. And here, what, what, what Paul really grounds their sanctification is, is that they are the family of God. That the baptism which they were baptized in is so much stronger than the blood of families. And though there might be so many differences, what united them was that they belonged to God and to one another. And because that they were this family they were able to hold one another accountable so that they might grow in their sanctification. I think what we get wrong so much when we think about becoming more like Christ, when we use this word holiness and sanctification, we think about just God and me. Like it's all about me and God and I just need to live this holy life and die to sin and live for righteousness. But Paul uses all this familial language to say you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to live together and walk together so that together we might actually be holy. 
Do you realize that? Paul is talking about the church. Yes, we have individual responsibilities. He talks about you as individuals need to control yourself. But then what does he say? He actually talks about you as a church living out your holiness together. So what does that look like for us to hold one another accountable in the church? What does it look like to open up about our work, let alone our money? Thinking about sex as people who are married or divorced or single. How are we called to care for one another? To see each other thrive. To see our marriages thrive. To care for each other's children. To come alongside those that are divorced. To care for our singles. Those that are same-sex attracted. Those struggling with gender dysphoria. Those who have really been having a hard time finding employment. Whether it's public or private, how do we open ourselves up to be able to find one another growing and becoming more and more like Jesus? It takes the whole family of God together. It's not just you and God. It's the responsibility of family. But lastly, it's the power of the Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit. Paul reminds us that we have been given the Spirit. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, this isn't behavior modification. If you just, if you just have enough strength and might and willpower, that you'll be able to just change your life and be more holy and become more like Jesus. No, this is the work of the Spirit's power that enables you, helps you to do and become more like Jesus. And this is only possible because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Because he lived the perfect life that we were not able to, that we are not able to. Every day we fail. Last night, as I'm actually, as I was going over my notes, I got in a fight with my wife about sanctification. I mean, I cannot do this. And it's in those moments where I feel so dejected, where I, feel, I, be, I begin to feel the shame come over me, sense the condemnation come over me. What we are reminded is that Spirit reminds us Jesus did it perfectly on your behalf. When he looks at you, when your heavenly Father looks at you in your failures, when you do not die to sin, when you revel in your sin, he sees Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect work, his perfect obedience lavishing over you, and he delights in you. And when that is true, and the Spirit reminds you of that, he gives you the confidence so that we might again repent, turn away from our sin, and live onto holiness and righteousness. It is the Spirit's work that does it. It is from the inside out, not out from the outside in. And that's why Paul girds this sanctification, grounds this in the Spirit's work on our behalf. And so when we fail, when we struggle, we can still be victorious because Jesus did it for us. Not only did he die for our sin to forgive us, but he was raised from the dead so we might experience victory through our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Lord, we know that we cannot do it on our own. 
I confess every single day I fail. But thanks be to God, whose Son lived the perfect life for us. So, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, strengthen us. Lord, Holy Spirit, empower us. Give us the conviction and reminder that we need so that we might be able to live onto you and to die to sin. Help us do that even as we come to the table now, as we break bread and drink from the cup. Empower us by your grace so that we might, Lord, become more like you and change the society, change our worlds because of the sanctification that you have promised, that it is the will of God and that you will bring it to completion. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.